Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take SideQuests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So, sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. Good afternoon, Slava. Good afternoon, Jonathan. On this blistery, wintry Tuesday. Do you have snow? At this I point? had about an inch of snow. Yeah. Uh, we've got like 20 inches. You want a couple more? No, no, you guys keep it. Mm, this snow, ship? yeah, I'll this, ship it to you. This snow came too late, and it's probably going to stay too long. I'm the kind of guy that likes snow around Christmas or New Year's. Yeah, snow can choose between those two days, and then can <laughs> screw right off to wherever it came from. Perfect. Well, I'll put I'll put a request in management. Please, please, because <laughs> I've been writing letters to no avail. Yeah. Santa hasn't gotten back to you. No, bummer. Bummer, bummer. So last time on SideQuest, we discussed It Part 3, which gave us um, through Chapter 12 and Interlude Number 3, and we found out a few interesting pieces of information. Also realizing now that we should probably do recaps for longer books, because I don't feel like we do regularly, just as like a mental note. Sounds fair. Right, because it's a long book. You want to cover, you know, what's been going on. So, in part three, we found out a bunch of things that I have to scroll up to. I mean, it's a long, it's a, it's a thirty-eight page document. What do you want from me? All work and no play makes Slava a dull boy, and he makes thirty-eight page documents. That's that's true. So last time on Side Quest the podcast, we saw our band of losers wandering around town and looking at different places they were at with is pennywise after you what are you doing balloons coming out of nowhere yeah there's a gnat that flew into my field of vision is it a leech anyway parasite our field of losers our, our group of our band of losers went through a walkabout in Derry coming back as adults and reconnecting with each other and they saw it in the various forms. We learned more about Beverly and her dad and the weirdness that happened there, which continues on in, in this uh, this section. Richie and Bill and finding out uh, or finding Bill's old bike at the at a pawn shop and he brings it over to Mike's house to work on it and Richie you know, has uh, Paul Bunyan chasing after him. It's a it's a pretty interesting uh, return home greeting, if you will, from Derry itself. Yeah, it's one of the shorter parts of the book, but it has a lot of action in it. A lot of stuff happens. It does. It does. That's the quick overview. Did I miss anything major? I don't Did think you so. Want to mention? They, okay. They take walking tours. They um, yeah have memories. Eddie. At the baseball field, remembers his best days were just watching baseball because his psycho evil mother didn't let him play sports. Right. And he remembers Belch Huggins being a complete turd. And Belch Huggins is one of the, one of the ones that died, I, I think. 
it's already kind of uh yeah he did blending and melding in my brain but yeah so that's one of the things that king has done well i think is he has all these kids that are like you you mentioned oh so and so died or so and so was found or whatever and then in flashbacks you see kind of what they were like in the in the town with the losers club not all of them but at least a lot of them from what yep. i've can tell which is nice tying up loose ends I like it same same so the question of the week here we got another slava special what monsters intrigue you well i have a few and th- it's not going to be a very direct answer to it seems like a direct question. I like anything that's otherworldly. So Lovecraft stuff, mm-hmm. all of them, like, you know, to various degrees, somehow are just fascinating. Pennywise, obviously, here is, you know, an interesting character because he is otherworldly. And I don't want to spoil a lot, but we get his POV again in part five. And it's just interesting, like, I wish we had a little bit more of what and who Pennywise is. But outside of Lovecraft and outside of our book here in question, I've always found vampires fascinating. Hmm. Why is that? Well, they're, they party. They're <laughs> usually, they're, it's, it's that, it's that rich kid you know, spoiled Duke who's a thief, right? They kind of have that air about them, at least in... Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about Twilight. I'm talking about, you know, Interview with the Vampire, some of the other classics, evil, undead, sons of perdition that walk the night and party and drink blood and terrorize the villagers. That just seems interesting to me. You know what sounds like an interesting story is a vampire who has not become rich... Like, you've been alive for hundreds of years, and you still haven't found a way to make a dime. What's wrong with you? That sounds yeah. like a funny story to me. Yeah, like, the, I can't get right, vampire. Yeah. Yeah. He has to, like, you know, like, feast on, you know, white trash from trailer parks. He can't, like, steal a king's son or daughter. He has to. <laughs> yeah, he actually just works as, like, a, a physician's assistant or something like that in a blood bank. Right at like you know at night, <laughs> yeah, some sort of some sort of uh, night shift blood bank worker making twelve bucks an hour. Bus boy on the weekends. Mm-hmm. I'd watch that. That could be funny. Little parody on uh, vampires. Yeah. What monsters intrigue you, Jonathan? I definitely like otherworldly stuff, but I think that my fascination with monsters probably began with mythology because there's just so many of them i would even consider the gods monsters at sometimes like the titans and the hounds of hell cerberus the the river sticks like all of these fancy places and and things and monsters and you know the fact that there are gods battling and even just what i would probably call more obscure mythology where it's like the minotaur like everyone knows what a minotaur is but like the minotaur was from when uh icarus flew too close to the sun with his dad where they put wax and bird feathers together and flew out of the labyrinth because they couldn't get out because of the minotaur and it's like 
there's just so many interesting creatures. But that brings me to a question that I've thought of for a a long time. And I'm not asking you this necessarily, but just this is how my mind works. Where did the Greeks get these mind these uh these monsters? Where'd they get their inspirations for these things? Because some speculate that these things used to be alive. They used to be real. They used to exist. There's some people who believe that the the old Norse Greek Roman gods were real beings that were here. Uh not necessarily aliens, but real beings, and they similar to the Neanderthals passed away. Or the um, the uh, Nephilim, the giant people, passed away. And they don't exist anymore. But they used to exist. So, And I think I probably subscribe to that. Because uh, people are imaginative, but they're not this imaginative. So, it's a theory that I have. Yeah. Put me on Jeopardy. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't thought about it, but gun to my head, don't know. Sure. Sure. Some form. You had a good life. Yeah. Some form of something existed, and stories got passed down. Yeah. And they got more elaborate as they got passed down. I believe in the supernatural. I don't believe it in the same way that is portrayed on any show on Hulu or pick a platform. Doesn't matter. I'm not picking on Hulu. Mm -hmm. Or the way it's kind of embedded in our psyche, like the, the the populace. I don't believe in that kind of supernatural because I think that is a recreation or a creative. They've taken creative license and created something else using, you know, their brains, their the creative part of their brains, uh, these movie makers and authors, just like Stephen King does. But I think that supernatural exists and things that we can't explain exist. So sure, I'll buy that for a dollar. He'll buy that for a dollar, folks. Like a 1980s dollar or like a 2024 dollar? 1980s dollar, since the joke or the line is from the 1980s. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Love it. Oh, also, um, last week we dropped an episode that would have been our one year. So happy one year anniversary, Slava. Happy Uh, one year. We've been together for a long time. Of course, this episode's going to air about two months after that. But, you know, happy one year. Happy, Happy late anniversary. I didn't yeah. buy you any flowers. Well, we wished each other a happy anniversary last episode, too, or the episode before. So we've been wishing each other a happy anniversary for at least two episodes, but yes. It's a big accomplishment. It is. It is. One year of doing, like, a creative thing? Yeah, I was about to say you can't wish it enough, at least for the foreseeable future, since we've made it this far. And might as well go into this right away before we get into the book. We have now expanded our reach. Uh, we are now on the iHeartRadio platform. We're going to be on YouTube. There's going to be limited releases on YouTube. And I've submitted us to Amazon. So we're going to be on Amazon Prime Podcast too. So a little bit more reach for good old SideQuest, which is something to celebrate. It is something to celebrate. That's true. But enough celebration. People didn't come here for that. Came for death. They came here for part four. Yes, part four of it. But as we do, you literary adventurers, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you never miss a side quest. And today's side quest, as Jonathan mentioned, is part four, July of 58, chapters 13 through 18, and the fourth interlude. So a quick overview of what we're discussing is 
We find ourselves in 1958. The losers gather in the library after their aforementioned walking tours, and they begin to remember more. They remember specifically in 1958 the apocalyptic rock fight between the losers and Henry Bowers and his gang. Mike is induced into the Losers Club. He shares his encounter with it. They decide they must fight it on their own. Henry being Henry breaks Eddie's arm and his henchmen and father cover for him. Eddie's mom shows her true colors, or, well, we get more of Eddie's mom, and she's a complete psychopath. She tries to break up the club and manipulate Eddie. We get back to 1985. It confronts the adult losers with balloons and the head of Stanley. We get a memory from Bev, which reveals how Patrick Hofstetter died. And, ooh, that's a doozy. Uh, And Patrick is a a kid that thinks things and does things. We'll get into that. We'll get there. 1985 again. Ben talks about the scar from Henry's attack coming back after Mike called. We get another memory of Ben making silver bullets, which are actually silver balls. They fight it at Kneebolt. They beat it. Sort of. But then they decide, they at least scare it away. Mm-hmm. But then they decide they must kill it for good. And a couple of misadventures involving good old Bowers and his henchmen force them into the sewers, where they fight it a second time as kids. They kind of beat it again. But as you know, they have to come back as adults. Mm-hmm. Then we come to the fourth interlude, where we learn of a horrific mass murder that happened in the bar right in front of the patrons. And these guys went on drinking and talking as the murderer was axing people to death in the bar. Because good old Claude kept the cutting and a mm-hmm. cutting. Mm-hmm. And the people kept on drinking. But then they killed Claude in a, with a, you know, by lynching him because mob justice just like right. the, the gang. Right. In my notes, I wrote that this is not necessarily something that we don't know about Derry, that people are insane and it is controlling them. But we do get something for Mike. Mike learns something because he goes through the history. Um, and we'll get to that. But there you go, Jonathan. That's what you read this week. That is the... Broad stroke overview. Let's move into chapters 13 and 14 quick. Mm -hmm. 13 was when the apocalyptic rock fight happened and 14 was the album. So first off, the apocalyptic rock fight, when Henry's attack on Mike led Mike to join the Losers Club because he was chasing him and he wanted to kill the black kid. We're we're self-censoring. It's more more, uh, verbose and aggressive than that in the book but if you're reading it and you're following along you know what we're talking about so you know henry is insane his dad's insane and a rabid racist and that's all you need to know and he tries to kill mike with an m80 which is what crazy people do yeah but one of the kids from from henry's little band of bullies is second guessing right like no. He's just making sure, like, we're not going to actually kill this kid, right? That was uh, Victor, was it? Vincent? Uh, no, not, not Crisp. It was the other one. Because Henry Belch 
uh, it was Peter Gordon, Peter Gordon. And he was like the rich kid, meaning he was from, you know, not the nicest part of town, but the nicer part of town than Henry and the right. rest of the losers, the real losers are. Yeah. And he was like, uh, maybe I shouldn't do this. And it's kind of hinted at, if I remember correctly, that he ends up actually dying because of Henry's shenanigans, too, at the hands of it. But have we gotten there yet? I don't remember him dying yet. Spoiler alert. Great. I think he well, I don't think we get anything detailed of him. But I think in this part, and you probably missed it because it's almost like a throwaway line that Peter Gordon doesn't make it to um, the plans that his uh, his dad has for him or the plans that he had for himself. He doesn't get to live them out because of him oh, not, not being able to say no to Henry. I think I do remember that line, but it's yeah. it, you're right. It is like a throwaway line where it's just like, oh, okay, whatever that means, keep moving forward. Yeah. One thing that stands out here is we and we heard we read about it earlier, but Henry admits to Mike that he killed his dog. Yeah. That pissed me off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He he didn't just do it to get his father's approval. He now needs to get the approval, if I can call it that, the attention of Mike as well to make yeah. sure that he knows it was him. Yeah. Yeah. Kids in this town are rough, man. It's dairy. That's what King was trying to do because he always talks about bullies. It's one of the tropes, and you can love it or hate it, and we live in a free country pluralism is great you can you can have the opinion you want but it is a trope of kings that there's usually bullies and he writes about bullies carrie started out that way Mm -hmm. Uh, the body which is um what stand by me the movie that became stand by me is the body salem's lot which i'm rereading because i never really finished it and i read like parts of it when i was a kid so maybe i should say just reading it but salem's lot there's a bully in it but Derry has a special type of bully and even Apparently. a special type of a citizen because you have your either apathetic ones, and we kind of touched upon this last time, or you're actively participating with it. Right. Yeah. So, but this apocalyptic rock fight, how'd you like reading that? That was kind of fun. Yeah. I was thinking back to my childhood, and I don't think we ever had anything so large. In terms of fight, like we did water balloon fights and stuff like, but this is like, this is out for blood type stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. The losers start defending themselves. Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of fun to read. It was nice that you get this um, this uptick, this like positive moment of the losers defending another kid. It seems interesting and a little out of the blue, where it's like, oh yeah, I guess Mike wasn't always part of the group in these flashbacks. But, like, I didn't put that together until I got this origin story because of where it was placed in the the book, right? Yeah. And so they have a shared enemy now. Yeah. Racism often in King's world is a marker of bad guy versus good guy. There's no, I don't think I read a book where a guy was mildly racist because, or full blown racist just because he's a character in a time where that was accepted but he has redeeming qualities, even though he's part of this kind of society and culture that just breeds racism, right? In King's works, I've noticed, and what do I know? I only read a few of them. When a character is racist, he's usually always the antagonist, and there's no redeeming qualities about him. 
Henry and his henchmen, especially Henry, blatantly racist. And the losers, when they see their arch enemy attacking this kid, they automatically defend him. So I think that's natural for the losers. But mm-hmm. also this is a literary plot ploy for King to say, here's how they meet. And now they're seven. It gives Bill a chance to step up as leader because Big Bill says the Barons are ours. So now they're fighting mm-hmm. for not only to protect themselves, not only to protect their new friend, but to make a stand. Together, they're able to repel and you know wound even the uh, the the gang, which makes them think give them gives them confidence that they have a greater chance against it once they decide to go to Kneebolt Street and fight it. But in in Bill's head, even though he's a leader, he has this premonition, almost this feeling that they're going to have to do it. This gives him confidence. And he look, after the fight, he looks over at Mike and says, wow, all right, we're all together now. It's almost as if Bill was waiting for Mike, not knowing it was going to be Mike Hanlon specifically. Yeah. He goes, now God help us. Now it really starts. Yeah. That's, yeah, page 709, and I think that's in the newer publication, um, or the middle public, whatever. The the publication with the sewer grate and the, and the claws, because there's been like three, I think, three different or four different book covers for it, but. Right, right. Nonetheless. So what do you think about Bill's character, let's say, growth here? Is Bill stepping into something or is Bill just doing what Bill does? Big Bill being the natural leader of the group. I think that if we were to read chronologically of just the kids times, it would feel more like Bill is stepping into leadership. But because we have him as an adult as well, and maybe it's just the order in which we've seen the kids play out, it doesn't feel unique by any means of of Bill being the leader because we've already seen him be the leader a bunch of times. If it was supposed to be more pronounced, it didn't feel like that to me. To me, it feels like Bill being Bill because we've already seen him in flashbacks acting like the leader. Right, right. What makes Big Bill Big Bill is the other losers naturally looking to him for guidance. Right. So taking this character question to somebody else i feel like even though it was a very small moment i think actually beverly had more of a moment here than than bill because um the kids were like oh hey you should stand behind us and she's like screw that i'm gonna pick up some rocks too and she like wanted to make sure that she was part of the group and not just like some girl yep and that stood out more to me than Bill stepping in as as leader again, stepping in based on his past experiences and memories that we've seen. Um, yeah. But her, she has been, I don't want to say like a victim the whole time at this point, but she has not had very many moments where she's gotten to stand up for herself. And so I think it stands out more where she's like, no, I'm going to do this. And she ends up being the one who's the best shot. Yes. She's the one that actually repels uh, defeats the maybe a, a small D 
the first fight they have with it at Kneebolt Street. Mm-hmm. So we're moving into chapter 14, the album in 1985, present day. Losers are gathered at the library, reminiscing over drinks. Beverly recalls a peculiar event involving Mike's photo album. But if we go back to 1985, right mm-hmm. around the time of this event, this is three days after the rock fight. Mike joins the group in the Barrens. They form the secret club. They're making the clubhouse. Mike brings an album of his dad's, and it's old stories and pictures of Derry because he's just interested in the history of Derry, or maybe there's more to it. Yeah. This is, I think, where Mike turns into the little amateur historian. Mm. These events kind of lead Mike in that direction, if you will. But they begin looking at this photo album. They're seeing a clown in woodcuttings and comic books of the of yesteryear and pictures of old Derry. Yeah. The clown is always present. So that speaks to its influence and its continual presence in Derry, its control mm-hmm. over Derry. Yeah. That was interesting because if if this is correct uh, that you're talking about where this is where Mike's inspiration to become a historian starts that would make sense um but it didn't seem that obvious to me i guess and maybe it's not obvious but how i'm looking at it mike becomes the scribe of the losers if mm-hmm. bill's king arthur mike is the scribe whatever knight was the scribe right so he's the scribe. He stays behind to watch the house, so to yep. speak, to watch the castle. It's only natural for him to take on some of the hobbies of his dad because yeah. his dad yeah, tells yeah. him stories. And when he tells him about the black spot burning down, he tells him about a bird. And Mike's encounter with it is a bird. Yes. Yep. So, the, so there's these kind of literary ploys, if you will, that King uses that I think connect Mike to this path which he finds himself in, in 1985. They remember this album. They remember the picture started moving. They remember the clown jumping and moving. They remember these supernatural events. It's screwing with them. You fast forward to 1985, where they're in the library remembering this, starts messing with Mike and, but, you know, and with them. Mike sees balloons. He goes to get a beer from the back. Stanley's head. He sees Stanley's head in the fridge. He sees a a foreboding message about the loser's fate on the Mm -hmm. balloons. But he continues to encourage the group to remember what they can from the summer of 58 and connect it to the memories in their current lives and particularly to what they experienced on their own earlier that day. So they start remembering and I think in Mike's head, this is supposed to encourage them, just like the rock fight did and the induction of Mike did for Bill. This is supposed to encourage them that even though they're missing Stanley, there is a way to beat this guy. We've beat him before. We just have to rely on our memories and remember what we did and move forward. So Mike is almost encourage i don't know how to say this without sounding clunky mike kind of takes the helm for a second mm-hmm. to help bill and the rest remember for them to yeah. take their rightful places even though we were missing stanley for them to take their rightful places and to start the 
another battle with it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how it, I look at it. It's uh, it's interesting that that's how you phrase it because it leads into Mike in the next chapter with the smoke hole. If you know anything about other cultures, not anything. If you know some things about other cultures, and how there are sometimes like shaman and priests that help bring people into vision quests i guess i'd call them anywhere from from american indians to south america with uh shamans and like ayahuasca and stuff like that you have an ushering in from a spirit leader person so it's interesting that you say that a quick side note from earlier though because i I didn't want to interject i don't remember king arthur's court having a scribe fair enough i looked it up i didn't see anything and it now it was 10 seconds but like I don't remember there being a scribe in the Knights of the Round. For some reason, I had it in my head that there there was a scribe somehow, but I could be conflating two stories or making it up. That's fair. But the, the smoke hole chapter was interesting because like these kids, there's a lot of, I didn't know this at the beginning, but there's a lot of talk of health in this book between Eddie and his mom and the and the pills to like cancer regularly being talked about and... So so when these kids decide to go have a uh, a vision quest of sorts with the smoke hole and they're just purposely breathing in smoke, it's just like, okay, well, I mean, it's definitely kid logic for sure where they are, you know, oh, we got to do this thing and it's a little ritual thing that we read in a book. It's like, okay, that's not healthy. You're all going to need the aspirator after this, but, uh, <laughs> you know, yep. okay, go for it. Yeah, and that goes back to something, and it's, it is what it is. I'm not pointing fingers or you know trying to dog you out, but something I said in the very first episode about kid law, or I called it laws. Yeah. Kid laws and adult laws, and we only gave it lip service for the next three episodes, even though we both were like, hey, that's something we should really revisit. But nevertheless, it's apparent here, and I'm glad you said something, because this is them going to the library, looking at how to kill monsters. They're going, they're thinking about movies. Silver bullet kills monsters. They're going through all these rituals, no pun intended to figure out how they can do it, but they're doing it with kid like ambition, kid logic, as you said it for King. That's what helps them best it both times as adults and as kids. And obviously as kids, it was, easier with heavy air quotes yeah yeah easier with air quotes (laughs) so they see where it came from it came from a go yeah i got a little lost with that because a go has never been mentioned before and like i get it's kid logic kid kid stuff but like that was not clear to me when i was going through it it's like okay it came from a go like dinosaur age or whatever long ago it just didn't feel clear to me well i don't know how king could have made it clearer because this is the point of the story where they formally decide to fight it and officially begin those rituals that i mentioned to research it to prepare themselves for it and in preparation to fight it they get this revelation for lack of a, a simpler word where it came from by doing this smoke hole ritual 
Richie sees the two of them outside the Barrens, and this is page 764. Mm -hmm. The foliage was deeper, lusher, and savagely fragrant. Uh, There are no buildings. The standpipe is gone. Huge bats fly by, and Mike shouts, this is a go, Richie, a go. And this is just kid logic. I know. It's it's kid logic. It's 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 stuff like that. And I think, because I'm like thinking about my comment here after I said it, um, I think this is just one of one of those notes where I want a Wikipedia page like in world on further information uh, so we can move past it. I'm, I'm just like thinking about my comment and thinking because this is a common theme that I come back to where I want like give me the backstory of like where did it come from and, and like you know like the actual details because it's to me it's like mythology. Like, but it's in-world mythology, right? You get more of it in part five, where you get the POV of it. Okay. It's not going to be satisfying, I guarantee you now. Sure, yeah, I mean, you know me well enough. It says what I think is enough. I mean, obviously, ten more pages on the mythology and history of it would have been fine. I wouldn't have complained yeah. uh, for an extra pages in a thousand-page book. Right, right. Here, the kids get the information they need. It came out of the sky. I never want to see anything like that again in my whole life. Page 772. Richie says, it came from outside. I got that feeling from outside of everything. Mm -hmm. It's the same page. Mike says, it has been there since the beginning of time, but ago. So in the movie, there's a a quote in the movie where this has been here forever, like forever how? And then the kids like banter a little bit. They're like, well, forever for like millions of years. So it came to Derry from beyond what we know as reality. It fell out of the sky. And then Derry was just built on top of this landing site. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just another one of those things that I I look for more, which is why I read these massive tomes of books. Right, right. Um, that have pseudo info dump or like info dump throughout 26 books. I'm thinking yep. about the Cosmere at the moment, but. Yeah, well, I don't think anything's – that's not wrong. You're not, like, wrong for wanting that. I'm just saying there's enough here. Yeah, it's clear enough for, for the average reader. I think, and this is pure speculation, I freely admit it, but I believe King is writing kids doing a silly thing like the smoke thing, and it wor- it's, and it's working. It worked because of the kid logic. Mm-hmm. It gave them a glimpse into what they're supposed to fight, and then they all start coughing and get pulled out. Richie and Mike start screaming because of their encounter with this with this it's not even an encounter, this vision of it. They start going and kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a perfect segue into a little palate cleanser here. The Lovecraftian connections to Pennywise. Because who else goes crazy when they see uh, different monsters of other worlds? Every single person in Lovecraft's universe. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Stephen King freely admits that gothic horror got him interested in writing. Poe, Lovecraft, all the horror comics of the 1950s. That's what he abs- absorbed into his being as a kid. And that's what got him interested in writing. Because he would take those comics and rewrite the comics with his own twists. He'd redraw mm. them and rewrite mm-hmm. them. King admits it. This is not Slava pulling anything out of his rear. Yeah. That's interesting because when Lovecraft died, he 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 basically died a failure, similar to Edgar Allan Poe. 
uh, these guys, you know, put out their work, they die, someone finds it and goes, I can make money off this. And then they, they, they bring it back to public consumption for us to enjoy. And then we're all like, oh, wow, this is like, it's unique. It's interesting. It's imaginative. It's scary. It's spooky. It's creepy. It also partly resonates with most of us where it's like, yeah, I think I've seen some darkness or I think I've seen whatever. And if I stared at it long enough, I think I might go crazy. Yeah, absolutely. So my question for you and for the audience is Pennywise Nyarlathotep, one of the outer gods. So we're just going to quick detour here because I think that even though we read um, Dagon, most of the audience probably is not deeply familiar with H.P. Lovecraft, but Nyarlathotep, which is, um, I think, a word created to make it sound Egyptian, eh, like an Egyptian pharaoh. Because he, in the lore, he comes from Egypt. Yeah. But he comes from outer space, but he kind of also comes <laughs> right. from Egypt. So for Nyarlathotep, Egypt is his dairy. Yes. Yep. Um, but the connection you make with this character, what is its technical category? So he's, uh, Nyarlathotep is a great one, which is like a subcategory or like a lower category of the great old ones in in Lovecraft mythos. And the great old ones would be something like Cthulhu himself. And they're the the master race gods. Like, I don't know how else to call it. And great ones, which is what Nyarlathotep comes from, is only a great one, not a great old one. So he's a lower class deity, if you will, in the world that is Lovecraft. And then you have also the outer gods, which are different as well. Um, Oh, wait, I'm misquoting this. Nyarlathotep is an outer god and the great ones are below him. I'm getting it confused. So, yeah, back to you, Slava, because now I'm just trying to talk about two different worlds and two different things. So now we've learned two things, audience. If you, for those of you that has, have been with us for the from the beginning, Jonathan is only the second best uh, fan of Sanderson, and apparently does not know anything about Lovecraft either. I'll, but he's read all the omnibuses. <laughs> okay. Well, the uh, I don't really have a whole lot to say right now outside of like, did you ask me to make a podcast to set me up for this moment? Because it's, you know, kind of feels like that at the moment. Uh, <laughs> Dude, it took me, it took us 65 episodes, but. You finally got what you wanted. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. To me. No, I'm kidding. So everything that Jonathan just said with the with his correction is true. N- Nair Lothotep is one of the outer gods. He's a messenger of the god of gods in the outer gods pantheon. And he pretty much comes to destroy whatever he comes to destroy. Like a world, a planet. He is prophesied, I think is the right word, in the story to destroy Earth ev- eventually. Like his mission is to destroy Earth. Pennywise, here's the con- I'm making the connections now. Pennywise is the eater of worlds. He that's his 
thing. And he'll say that when he's fighting with the, the losers in the final battle, I think. He's, he'll scream, I am the eater of worlds. What do you think you can beat me? Mm-hmm. Now, Rylothotep, he manipulates and deceives. He drives people insane for his own pleasure. He gets to control people in some way, like to have them do their bidding. When people around him, they either go mad or insane or are just transfixed. They can't do anything. Very similar to what happens in Derry. It is said that he resides in the center of the earth. Now, I'm not talking about the core of the planet Earth, but he lives underneath wherever he's visiting. And he's depicted as the dweller in darkness. And here we have Pennywise, who is something that lurks below Delhi. Mm. Delhi. Delhi. <laughs> New Delhi, old Delhi. Yep. Double Dairy. Delhi. Double Delhi. Can I get some pastrami in the, at the Delhi? Yeah. Gabagoo. Um. <laughs> That's not how you say that either, but that's part of the joke. Haha. So we have these connections. We have the evidence, which is Stephen King loves Lovecraft. And we have these observations that I've made. And yeah, I went to the internet, which there's no lies found on the internet. Other people have made too. Mm-hmm. And there's a few notes I want to read about a different guy that I took down from a blog post that I read which I forget where I got it from. I think it was um, Screen Rant. It's one of those blogs about movies that are ubiquitous. So Azathoth was the connection that these guys made. They said Azathoth is the ruler of gods, and he's sending Narayla Thotep to Earth to destroy it, to mess with people, to manipulate them. He, oh, yeah, he can shapeshift and alter people's perception of reality. So there's another connection to Pennywise. Mm-hmm. So the story that these folks quote is The Whisper in the Darkness. And The Whisper in the Darkness, the plot is easy. Uh, newspapers report that after a historic flood, which happens in Derry, but this one's in Vermont, in Vermont, Strange things are seen floating in the rivers. Mm. Akili, which is one of the characters, writes to Wilmarth. Akili is the man from Vermont, and Wilmarth is the professor of literature. So Akili, a guy from Vermont, Vermont, writes to Wilmarth, the professor, claiming to have proof of the existence of an extraterrestrial race that can shapeshift. Akili and Wilmarth eventually meet, but Achilles is, a ter- is in a terrible state. Wilmart feels unease when traveling to uh, Achilles. He, he, there's the sense of dread going to this town in Vermont. Achilles runs away during the night. Before this, Wilmart hears bizarre conversations. So this is after their meeting, right? Uh, Wilmart discovers that the thing that he thought was Achilles was something else. He found Achilles' face and hands at the chair where Achilles was sitting in the night. And he, he was supposedly bound. You know, he's in a terrible state. He's sitting in this chair. He can't move. And now he doesn't exist because somebody wore his skin. So that's where that story ends. So it seems that although Narayla Thotep is what Pennywise is based on, the Azazot, the leader, Azathotet, 
Azathotet, the leader of these outer gods, also has the same type of powers. Like Pennywise eats kids, he destroy mm-hmm. he destroys their bodies. Naralathab doesn't do that, but Azathotet does. Interesting. So those are the connections I wanted to make, and I don't want to belabor this and you know take us off into a different, completely different podcast episode, which could be interesting. But those two things make me think that King was deliberately doing this. This is not just something from the recesses of it. Pulling from, yeah. Not from the recesses of his kid mind. This is something he pulled directly from the Cthulhu mythos or the Lovecraftian universe. That's interesting. I mean, you you certainly have the option to do something like that because A, Lovecraft has been dead for ages, and B, most people are not going to make this connection, and C, you've kind of made it your own. And D, it also still fits in the H.P. Lovecraft universe because, like, these Elder Gods, Outer Gods, they sit outside of average space and time that people are familiar with, and they they go and wreak havoc on many worlds, and this happens to be one of those worlds. So I propose that uh, this is canon H.P. Lovecraft. Very good. One last little note. Azazot is, according to Wikipedia, uh, and Robert Price an editor of the Mythos universe on Lovecraft, argues that Lovecraft could have combined the biblical name of Anathot, Jeremiah's hometown, and Azazel, mentioned by Lovecraft in the Dunwich Horror. Price also points to the alchemical term Azoth, which is used in the title of a book by Edward Waite, Arthur Edward Waite, the model for the wizard Ephraim Waite in Lovecraft's The Thing on a Doorstep. So all that to say, even back then, people were borrowing from each other's universes to make darker mm-hmm. universes. And the king just, in my opinion, did that here. And there you go. Pennywise is part of the H.P. Lovecraft universe. I believe it. Let's dive back into the story, chapter 16 here, where Eddie's bad break happens. Oof. And he's getting ruffled around by Henry Bowers, who broke his arm just after... The young psychopath Patrick Hockstetter disappeared and for good reason. And that happens in the next chapter, right? Yep. Yeah, next chapter. We'll get into that in a minute. With that, Eddie doesn't just break his arm. Eddie has to confront his mom on being an overbearing mother, which seems challenging for a kid at his age. Like, I don't know if I could have done that when I was a kid at his age to confront my mother on like, hey, you're purposefully like leading me to believe that I'm sick so that you feel good, right? Like that's a big, that's a big ask for a kid. But Eddie had had that conversation with the the pharmacy store owner. I think there's this line where he said, why would Mr. Keene lie to me? And then an even better question, why would he tell the truth, right? Yeah. So that's an interesting thought to have as a kid where you, you know, you, you are believing adults, but you're also asking difficult questions like, well, why would he lie about this? And why does he care? You know? Yeah, it's this is a really, really difficult section for me because I feel so bad for Eddie because he ends up being broken still. He confronts his mom, kind of. Yeah. It's enough for him to continue to be part of the Losers Club and to fulfill their destiny. So that's good. But at the end, he still asks her for a hug. You know, and after she's gone, Eddie thinks no turning around. No one goes home until we get to the end. And that's that good part of the the story where he's now going to be 
with the losers when they need to go get it. He confronts her, but he still lets her do what she's always done, which is to manipulate him. Mm-hmm. And frankly, she's friggin' evil. Yeah. This is not just an overbearing, although she is, or an overprotective helicopter mom. She's evil. She's a disgusting human being. Mm-hmm. You know, physically and mentally, she's disgusting. And he never breaks from her. In adulthood, he still uses the aspirator for psychosomatic asthma. He's controlled by drugs. He wants to drink with the loser, so he likes his gin, but he's mixing it with prune juice because it's good for you. So he never, ever breaks from the shadow of his mom. And this is, yeah, to me, a very sad, sad chapter. I, my heart breaks for Eddie. And I had a crazy mom like him. She didn't have Munchausen, uh, Munchausen syndrome by proxy. She was overbearing. She did react irrationally to things. And she did keep me away from friends and outings, mm. being able to live life like a normal kid and grow and mature. So I can relate to him. I was able to confront and pretty much distance myself at an early age uh, from my mom, where she never stopped being who she was, but it had less and less of an effect on me as I got into high school, and then it had no effect on me after I got out. So it breaks my heart to see Eddie lose the battle. He kind of wins, but he ultimately loses. Right, right. And that's a good reminder for us that he he may have won this small little battle, but he didn't win the war because we Mm -mm. see him in adulthood. I was going to ask you, did you ever catch an adult in a lie as a kid like Eddie did with his mom? Uh, It sounds like maybe you did with your mom, but like doesn't have to be her. It is. It's her. Okay. It's her. I can name two adults. My mom, Uh the earliest memory I I have of her is her lying to my dad that I swore at her or called her a dumbass or something Mm -hmm. to get me in trouble. And I remember that starkly as a 40-year-old being so scared and so shocked and like unable to even react. And I'm sitting there, I'm looking at her shoes and I'm looking at his shoes and we're this little foyer. And I remember her saying... You know, he called he called me a dumbass. He he you should punish him. It rocked my little world. And I can name about seven other adults. I said one but seven other adults. Mm-hmm. My father's sisters and one of his other sons, my half brother, by extension the other kids, hit from me that my mom had a mental disorder. So when she would go insane and tr- and try to triangulate, call them and something would blow up, they would naturally come to me and as Nine, ten, eleven, twelve, all the way through about seventeen-year-old. Before I told them all to go to hell, would tell me like how I should manage up the things that I did wrong to set her off, and why I shouldn't do them, either as a good citizen or a good Christian or just a good son. It screws with your head. Yeah, it I really, bet. really does. And by God's grace, He just made me pig-headed, stubborn asshole with maybe a little bit too much self-confidence, but at least the pig-headedness. It helped me deal with it in a way that helped, that constantly separated me. With each step, it separated me further and further from the dysfunction. That's a bit clunky, but that's the best way I can, I can say it now. So you're attributing your personality disposition to helping you break free of the madness that was uh, in the world that you grew up in. Yeah, as a secondary means, yeah. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm glad, uh, but that doesn't change the fact that that still sounds... Really tough. Awful. Yeah. 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 
What about you? Same question. Have you encountered like a, a teacher or an adult as a kid that something something big? You know, it doesn't have to be as big as mine because we're we're not. This is not a. It's let's not share a Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but well, so when I was thinking about this question, I can't pinpoint anything besides like Santa Claus, right? And then when you find out before the other kids, you know, they tell you don't don't tell the other kids, and it's like I don't want to be in on your lie. You choose to lie to kids. That's your problem. I don't have to choose to lie to kids. I find joy in telling them that Santa doesn't exist. Nothing, nothing so deep and stark as what you said, but I did have something come up later in life that mm. was my mom, as my parents were getting a divorce, I found out that she had been married a couple times before. And it's Oof. like, oh, well, do we have additional siblings? And she's like, no. Just like, oh, she was just young and got married a couple times. And that's the only thing that sticks out to me. Hmm. I felt strange in the moment. And then I thought, okay, well, if there are no other kids, then I guess I don't really care. Because, like, that was before I was born by, you know, 20 years or whatever it was. Right. It's a weird thing to lie about. But, I mean, different generations lie about different things, right? So Yeah. And did she lie about it or she just totally omitted the information? I think she just omitted the information more than yeah. a lie because, like, it's never a question. I'd never, I never straight asked her like, "Have you been married before?" Because I didn't have a reason to. Right. right. Like, it was, it was, it was an omission thing, but it was still like, I mean, that happened in twenty sixteen that I found that out. So almost a decade ago. Wow, time is going. But yeah, just an omission thing. It's just interesting though. Like I, I deeply believe that adults should not lie to kids, and part of the reason that kids get caught in the crossfire in their lives be that sex trafficking or abuse or molestation or whatever like really bad stuff it's because they're taught that adults don't lie to them and like some adults do because some adults are evil yep speaking of evil patrick hostetter Oof. okay let's go let's dive into this let's get this one over this was this was a tough chapter chapter 17 could it also be called the brief history of patrick's craziness yeah Ooh, crazy is not deep crazy is not heavy enough of a word it's it's true psychopathy it's true evil it's true yeah the way he kills that puppy ugh, just it and his brother patrick for those who don't know believed that he was the only real creature in the world when he was 12 he smothered his baby brother avery to death and the book says he ugh. felt no guilt had no bad dreams Page eight forty, and he felt he felt a thrill too. Yeah, yeah. The only thing that he knows is that he would be in trouble if he were caught. Rules must be obeyed. Patrick says rules are there for a reason, but since he's the only real person in the world, he just he can break them, but he still doesn't want to get caught. So that's the craziness. That's the psychopathy. The, yeah. the illusion there. But like, how do you how do you think you're the only real being, and that there are this set of rules that you have to follow? But you don't think like where did the rules come from? Well, like, because you're because you're, you're mentally imbalanced. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, it's a rhetorical question. Yeah. No, I get it. I get it. So he has this fridge, and he molests Henry quite literally. Yeah. And after Henry uh, tries to fight him off, well, he fights him off and then blackmails him because Henry in his psychopathy and his dysfunction sort of enjoyed it. I don't think he had a choice to, because of the way the book describes the molestation, mm -hmm. I don't think he really enjoyed it, but 
there's an altercation between them after the molestation. Henry leaves. And side note, Beverly's watching all this because she got stuck in the Baron's plane. And then these three assholes were doing, they're lighting their farts on fire. Yeah, all their nonsense. And so she's forced to watch Patrick after Henry departs. And he goes to a fridge. And lo and behold, the fridge has a bunch of dead animals in it because Patrick still needs to catch that high uh, from killing Avery. So he finds half-alive animals or alive animals and puts them in a fridge and comes back in a couple of days to get the thrill of seeing them dead. Well, this day, something flies out of the fridge, leeches or parasites, and he gets eaten alive, eventually by Pennywise, and Beverly sees this. So Beverly watches Patrick thrash and scream, but she isn't sure what she has seen. One of the leeches bites her arm, but she pulls it off and shoots another one with a bullseye. This is where we get a little bit more of how you know strong Beverly is, even in the midst of mm-hmm. terrible situations. And she follows a trail of Patrick's blood, finds Patrick's wallet, and then each of his sneakers. The trail ends at one of the concrete cylinders, and then something is laughing at the bottom of the tube. Mm-hmm. So Patrick gets e- gets eaten, and he realizes. I'm going to read one little note, and then I'm going to want want to hear your thoughts and everything. The parasites remind Patrick that he is indeed just flesh and blood, and that his body is just as vulnerable as those of the animals that he has killed, and that of his dead younger brother. The figure who steps out from behind the cars as he's being eaten by leeches is Pennywise. Patrick, however, cannot see the clown clearly because he's losing consciousness. However, he does feel it feeding on him much more forcefully than the leeches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This was just a really dark chapter to read mm-hmm. because you want to believe, like I think most of us want to believe the best of people, but sometimes there's actions that are taken that you just go, you need to get locked up or somebody needs to beat the crap out of you because like you need to understand you're you're not just someone needs to with more power needs to put this being in in their place and it does so but um something that stuck out to me during this chapter was when Beverly shoots one of the insects mm-hmm. she thinks that she misses and it curves toward it that struck me as like a moment of the turtle Yep. But only because you told me that the turtle is sort of benevolent, per se? Yeah, he's sort of benevolent. Well, he is better than Pennywise, but he's also kind of apathetic. You'll find out that out later. That's not a big spoil. Sure. But, yes. And relying on the turtle gives the losers power. But it's more, if I'm reading King correctly, it's more the loser's power as a group than actually the turtle influencing anything on earth. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. That'll make sense more later. Yeah. Um, yeah. One quick side quest. We're talking about fridges here and I, this just came to me. So Patrick and his fridge with dead things in it. And then where does Mike find Stanley's head? In a fridge. In a fridge. So I thought yeah. oh, that's kind of cool. Well, but side quest over. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Final stretch here. Chapter 18 and then uh, the fourth interlude. Let's uh, let's wrap this bad boy up. Let's do it. So in chapter 18, aptly named the bullseye, 
present day, Ben is showing them the scar that Henry carved into him. And then he said it came about when Mike called them. So Mike calling them, their scars coming back. This is destiny. This is them being called back Mm -hmm. to complete what they started as kids. Ben makes, uh, what does Ben make? Oh, this is when Ben makes the, the silver slugs. And he makes them in the workshop of Bill's dad, like this garage workshop. The day that the Losers Club finally met it face-to-face combat, the day it almost had Ben Hanscom's guts for garters, was June 25th, 1958. They go to 29th Kneebolt Street, they crawl underneath the porch in the cellar, and after a few confrontations with it and it messing with them, Beverly shoots it in the face mm-hmm. and drives it back down the pipes. Yeah. And Ben gets scratched by him. That's what the, that from page 866, 866, yeah, Ben Hankum's Guts for Garters. Mm -hmm. Ben checks himself. He sees the scratches on his stomach, but he's unharmed. They go to the clubhouse. Bill tells them that this is not over. It'll want us now more than ever. He thinks that it will be in a new shape next time, which will be just like a month later. And one that would be invulnerable to silver. This was a really good chapter. I liked it. The kids get their licks in with it. Yeah. And that they bond more. And it was action packed for sure. It was action packed. It was a fun chapter. Yeah. The, that fight shows them that it is vulnerable. But Bill is smart enough. Like I just read, Bill is smart enough to know the next fight is going to have to be different. So they're going to have to adjust. Mm-hmm. So two things, because I want to go back to this. It was a question I had earlier. Did any of the kids that you grew up with turn out to be psychopaths? Yes. Yes. I won't go into too much detail. One of my childhood friends, I can't really call him a friend because he was so older than me when I was his age, but I was friends with his little brother Mm -hmm. and our families were friends and my parents were at these people's wedding. So when the oldest son was born, we were all, I wasn't alive yet, but we were all around his families, right? Mm -hmm. That older son ended up murdering his grandma with a hammer. Woof. My other question was going to be, when you were a kid, was there any sort of big overwhelming goal that you needed to accomplish? Kind of like the Losers Club needed to accomplish with it? I don't think it would be the same goal. You didn't have a... You didn't have a... Running away from a guy with a hammer. (laughs) Yeah, okay. I'm kidding. Um... No, I can't think of anything. I remember that we moved around a lot. So my overall overwhelming goal was always to find new friends in a new place. Mm-hmm. And that's not even that big of a deal. Well, it is a big deal. It is when you're a kid. It is. But what I'm saying, it's not analogous to what the losers are going no, through. No, 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 no. Even, even in some minary fashion, it's not really analogous because I just had to move a lot around a lot. And by the time I got to high school, I already grew into myself a little bit more and I was more confident. And so high school was a breeze for me. I I didn't have any bullies in high school. All I had to contend with was living with my mom who was unstable, Mm -hmm. but that was easier now. And I did get into trouble because, uh, you know, as any kid with the unstable house, you find the wrong people to hang out with. So I got into trouble, but I didn't have anything to overcome with you know what i mean yeah yeah so not in the same way normal yeah. kid stuff based on your circumstances 
no yeah. sort of overwhelming. I didn't have an overwhelming goal either. Like, you know, occasionally it was, uh, you know, summertime. Can we build a fort in the woods? But that's not like a goal. That's like a fun thing. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, oh, I need to win the race to get the girl or destroy it or, you know, yeah. get a job to buy an ice yeah. cream. Right. Yeah. Nothing like that. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. That's uh, That was just what I, I was curious about. All right. Final stretch. Fourth interlude. The fourth interlude. This is a fun one. And, and it's not because we get any new information on dairy, right? We just get right. a glimpse this. of something that happens in dairy every every day, apparently, or every 27 years. It happens right. with, you know, an exponential kind of uh, level. So Mike writes in his diary now that he's very drunk and he's going to write about Claude Heroux and the Silver Dollar, which is a beer joint. On September 9th, dozens of men were eating and drinking the Silver Dollar when Heroux arrived with an axe. <laughs> After that, you know that's not going to go well. After two drinks, no. he went to a car table and started cutting. Quote, page 1902. Backstory, some of his friends were killed by union busters, and he decides to take revenge. He kills several men, but people continue drinking at the bars of nothing is happening. And people are screaming, and he's cutting hands and plunging axes into stomachs. So this is not just you know, quick and easy deaths. Thuragode, this is the guy who told Mike the story. He's mm-hmm. one of the old timers in Derry. Tells Mike that it was like town business. It's like going to City Hall and figuring stuff out with one of the select men or select women of the town. And something's going on in the background, but you, this is what you're doing here. Shit that happens every day in Derry. So he starts cutting and he continues to cut until he kills all the men except for one who he believes were involved in the murder of his friends. Mm-hmm. And then he's arrested. He has the, a glazed, dazed look on his face, but he's arrested, put in jail, and then a lynch mob, a mob of people lynches him. It's the same thing as with the gang from the previous interlude. Yeah. Instead of calling the feds and setting a trap for the gang and calling the authorities, they set a trap and just murder them in the street. Again, doesn't share any new information about dairy, but more pivotal to the interlude is Mike's realization that they are weakened. It is clear to Mike that it wanted them to come back, and he fears that this is because Stanley is gone. And he Mm -hmm. wakes up to a balloon. It came by and even touched him, I think, or messed with him while he was sleeping because he's drunk, passed out. And there's a balloon. And that shows Mike that it knows it probably called them back. It wants a reckoning. Yeah. And that'll become more apparent. Like, I'll spoil a little bit more. That'll become more apparent in part five, where it's not happy that it was beaten, and these kids are going to No, no. And and I talked about that last episode, that things in power don't like being overtaken by other things in power, regardless of of who they are. But uh, the the group that you were thinking of from the the last interlude was... uh, the Bradley Gang. So, oh, the Bradley Gang. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. It's there's a lot of names and a lot of things to cover. There's a lot of lot of details here. So, yeah. That sure is it. But any final thoughts on the section? I thought it was a good one. It was a long one. It was packed. It was a lot of information. It was, it was packed full because there's a bunch of outstanding pieces of plot at this point. Even though the the big one is just like, will they kill it? And will they survive are the two biggest ones. I expect there to be a bunch more information in, in part five that will 
require thorough combing before yeah. uh, before we dive into that. And then, sixth episode on this, we're going to have Jess back on to discuss her thoughts on it. Um, I'm looking forward to that because I think she has a lot of great input. I think so, too. I, I'm looking at her notes that she dropped into the document, and we will be discussing interesting things i'll just say that i will mm-hmm. I, I won't spoil it i'm excited to have her on and she's excited she's never read it just like you and she's like holy crap why haven't i read more stephen king books he's such a yeah. good writer yeah now not all his books are fantastic no but like salem's no. lot it the stand are amazing uh, his short stories i think all of them are amazing despite the, some of the stuff the critiques we had about rainy season and everything yeah. else as far as short story composition, King is King. So I'm excited. Nice. For next week and for the following week and for year two of podcast with Slava and Jonathan. SideQuest. We call, we call it SideQuest. I know that you're new here, but we call the podcast <laughs> SideQuest. I'm channeling Spencer. <laughs> oh, good. We got his chance to do the outro. He's like, uh, yeah, well, <laughs> thank you for... Joining what? us on, yep. um, it's called Side Quest, Side Quest Spencer. Yeah. Great. Can I redo that? Nope. <laughs> and the audience, like, they they heard, like, a three-second pause. But it was a longer pause. I just had to edit it down so it was, yeah. like, dead air. <laughs> right. Right. Well, good stuff. I, yeah. uh, per usual, am enjoying reading this. I also realized that this is not my first King novel. I read his Dark Tower, book one. This is better. But also, Dark Tower is, like, a series you have to pack or you can spread out the details throughout multiple books. So, but we, we've thrown dark tower on our list, on our reading lists that we'll get to eventually for right now, this is the best King work that I've certainly read and I've said it before and I'm sure I'll say it again in the next two episodes. Sounds good. I love it. So next time, part five, ritual of Jude chapters 19 to 23 and the last interlude. Mm hmm. All right, you literary adventurers, make sure you hit that subscribe button so that you never miss a side quest. <laughs>